0: This is KDPI, 89.3 FM. Catch them.
1: Good morning. This is Ellie Newman, and you're listening to It's Relationship. Thank you for joining us. Today my guest is Jerry Moffitt. Jerry first arrived in Nepal on British kayaking expedition at the age of 18. Over the next 20 years, he became the first man to descend all the major rivers in the Nepalese Himalayas. In 1990, he established the First River Company in northern Pakistan. Currently, he serves as the whitewater consultant to the Kingdom of Bhutan. National Geographic regards him as the most experienced river guide in the Himalayas. Jerry resides between the Himalayas and Sun Valley, Idaho, where he can best pursue his professional expertise and passion in the world of adventure travel. I borrowed this from your website, Jerry, I hope you don't mind, <laughs> but it was so good. It's like, why should I do my own work? Because this <laughs> is stellar. So welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Haley. Thrilled to be here.
1: So uh, we were just talking, I was asking Jerry, we're kind of rocking a little bit to the song we played before the show started and i was asking him if he had music on his latest escapade which was a three thousand mile journey across the himalayas He he's recently back and, and he said no he had to pay too much attention to driving the, the motorcycle and other things he's got a cup of coffee here and uh, which he normally doesn't drink but <laughs> i said it was reasonable that he might be a little bit tired and he just got off the mountain this morning so he's probably done more already this morning than most of us so Jerry, you grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland and you started paddling as a, a wee tyke in cold, wet Scotland. When I read it, it just makes me cold. So I'm guessing if, if that didn't dissuade you, you somehow knew that that might be your, your destiny. What was it like when you were a kid starting to paddle? Well,
0: I think Scotland uh, has a, a, and had at that time a very strong program in um, outdoor education and outdoor pursuits. and. Not a lot of people know, but that's actually where the Outward Bound programs uh, originated and started. And growing up in Scotland was fabulous because the conditions weren't uh, necessarily world class. But in terms of weather and uh, creating a toughness... I don't think there's any place uh, like Scotland to to kind of discipline you and make you hardy to the conditions. And it's interesting now living in Sun Valley where we have these, you know, perfect days. We used to go out in, in Scotland in November and literally just peel our fingers off the paddle. Nobody could get the car door open because nobody could hold the keys, everybody was so cold. At the end of the trip. And so it's <clears throat> it was a great foundation. I mean, Scotland's just a, a a beautiful, a wonderful environment to to participate in the outdoors. Uh, and it just gave me a great platform to operate from.
1: So do you think you had to be born with some of that toughness or do you think you just all grew it?
0: Well, I think it's inherent in Scots in general. That's why the pubs are so popular. That's why drinking's so popular. The weather's so atrocious, but they often say, you know, the countries with the uh, the worst weather, when the weather clears, are often the most beautiful. And I think there's a very strong affinity uh, between Scots and their their natural environment and and their heritage. So Scotland definitely has a way of, of breed. I I can feel myself slipping back into Scots accent right now, but. um you know now scotland has a uh, it 's a beautiful country it 's small but it 's beautiful
1: and then you paddled extensively in the Himalayas when it wasn 't vogue it wasn 't safe. What got you started there
0: well I'd, you know i i'd started down the path of outdoor education and I knew that that's that 's the the path that I wanted to follow and I ended up going through the national certifications of becoming an instructor and, and getting into the the national governing body. Board of of the roots of of outdoor education and teaching, um, and then when I was working at an outdoor education centre in Scotland, um, I was offered the opportunity to join a British expedition to go out to the Himalayas, and I was young at the time. I was I'd just turned eighteen. And um, so I found myself in the Himalayas, and we, we had just this incredible experience. I mean, just an unbelievable transition from being in Scotland to being in the middle of Asia.
1: It was a little different.
0: A little different. Edinburgh to Kathmandu was, it was a little different, certainly in the 80s. I think the 80s in Kathmandu were probably similar to the 60s in America. You know, it was a time when um, there really weren't, well, I think actually probably more so, there really weren't any rules in Asia. The only rule was don't kill yourself and Try not kill anybody else that you're traveling with, and, uh, and if you did, nobody cared there was no no recourse, no comeback uh, no laws no no the, the interpret there was such a sense of freedom there was such a sense of authentic adventure where you were primarily responsible for your own actions, and that's the environment that I grew up in I grew up then. Uh, after the expedition was finished, I was facing the prospect of coming back to, to Scotland flat broke in the middle of winter and having to find a job. And as fate would have it, I ended up in the, uh, the right bar at the wrong time or the wrong bar at the right time, whichever way you look at it. And I was offered a job um, by a British expedition company to stay in Nepal and work as a, a trainee river guide for a commercial rafting operation. And so I stayed and I worked for these guys for for six years. And it was an incredible outfit. At the time, they were leading these overland trips from London out to Kathmandu, London, Johannesburg, Rio de Janeiro to Barranquilla. So the premise of the company was revolved around this group participation of, of people joining an expedition and, and moving across a continent because Back in those days, there wasn't any public transport and there still really isn't any linking public transport to cross Africa or Asia or South America. So the idea was that a group of people got together, were put in the back of this truck and built their way across a continent. So you can imagine from a geopolitical standpoint, wars, you know, Gandhi being shot, uh, Revolution in Chad. I mean, these expeditions were incredible in terms of the the hazards and and the situations they had to to surmount. And working as an expedition leader for that company, um, it was really about problem solving. It, It was about you know, continuing to push forwards, and and really you, you, there was nobody to ask.
1: And did you have a sense from the beginning when you decided at 18 to go and then when you joined on for after the six years there for the next leg of the, the adventure and expedition, did you know what you were signing up for? Did you have a sense of what, what the challenges were going to be and what the adventure was going to be?
0: I didn't. I mean, I think at the age of 18 you're just taking everything as it comes. Every day was an adventure. Every situation was an opportunity. And uh, the company is... Because uh, you
1: didn't have the internet. You couldn't go on the internet and Google you know, these
0: places and see what what it was going to be like. Yeah, you know, we were thrust into various experiences. I remember one, one occasion, I'd just finished 16 months working overseas and I'd come home pretty burned out and I was in london just outside london where the workshops were the vehicles came in and got turned around and it was a thursday night and i got a call i was you know hey get down to the head offices in london immediately i was down there i was in the pakistan embassy getting an expedited visa put together and i was in islamabad on sunday morning leading a trip up the karakoram highway into china and i'd never been there before you know but this was the type of responsibility that was put on the leaders and drivers was to to figure things out and um and uh, and was, so what
1: did you use for resources
0: Well, resources back in those day were in those days were really a kind of a a a, a handbook of instructions that were was continually Added to. So you knew that Habib Ulawant was the guy that you went to in Srinagar. You you knew that uh, Mr Manali was the guy you went to here. And so, so you're was, kinda
1: like a spy. It's like you had your contacts and you had your
0: mission it, it and was, the rest was up to you. Yeah, it was a really interesting time. I mean it was a it was a it was an amazing period of exploration in the Himalayas. And it, it kinda dates back, I think us you know, we Brits have that kind of built in. I mean I am Americans tend to look at the Himalayas in terms of modern-day exploration and and climbing, whereas Brits tend to look at it in days of the Raj, and um, and days of the Empire. I mean, our history goes way back. You have a very in,
1: different in, relationship to India, a, in exactly. the
0: rest of Asia. So, and and the Indians have a very strong affinity to the Brits, even though the Brits were you know atrocious in terms of the conditions that they imposed. There's still a very strong bond between India and Britain, and. Uh, and, and, we, and we all kind of share this this area. You've of, all got tea. We've all got tea. we all got tea.
1: And and you started at some point filming the adventures. What was the impetus for that? And, and tell us a little about the, about the project Triple Crown.
0: Well, it was an interesting time. The mid-'90s was the beginning of the digital era. Uh, it was the beginning of the internet. And um, I'd worked in front of the camera on a number of uh, expeditions for National Geographic and that had been filmed. And with the the transition into video, it, it kind of meant that anybody could go out and document um, their projects. And we were in locations that were exotic and spectacular, and we were pretty much at the top of our game in terms of leading the charge as athletes, that what we were actually doing became relatively valuable because it was it was interesting content. And video in and of itself is not, you know, really that difficult to master. And so we kind of were in the right place at the right time with that one. And um, and I'd worked with enough cameramen, one actually phenomenal cinematographer who lives here in town, Bob Poole. And uh, Bob had kind of taken me under his wing a little bit. And I'd, I'd learned a, a little bit in terms of understanding the craft of filmmaking and what was involved. And so we were handed video cameras. And we, again, in this amazing place, uh, community of, of Ketchum, Sun Valley, Idaho, were linked in with uh, Men's Journal, and we got to know Jan Winner through my great friend Reggie Christ. and before we knew it, we had a, a series of films on the docket to go out and produce.
1: And how had you ended up in Sun Valley from the Himalayas, in well, Edinburgh?
0: I'd, I'd Sun Valley, uh, or Idaho, is also known as, in, in our small circles, as the Whitewater State. And there's a there's a series of rivers uh, called the Piat River System, the South Fork of the Piat, and certainly the North Fork of the Piat, which is a world-renowned river uh, that drains and, and comes out of um, Piat Lake um, up in uh, McCall, and it's you know it's, it's a, a world-class reputation, just like the North Shore of Maui or the Iger or Everest. The North Fork of the Piat is is one of the classic difficult rivers in the world with this incredible access so I always knew that I was I was drawn there, I, I'd met a few people I'd seen a few films and I kind of knew that I was going to be drawn there and I ended up meeting some people in Idaho who owned a river company in Idaho, on the Piat and they said, hey, do you want to come um, do you want to come work for us and so I was that was my, my shoe in I'd never actually heard of Sun Valley or Ketchum and then, uh, you know, then I met a girl um, a fabulous friend of mine, uh, Danielle Crist, and I met the Crist clan, you know, an institution in, in Ketchum, Idaho, in and of themselves, and we became really great friends, and, and I was introduced into uh, the community that was back in 1989.
1: And so, through Jerry Moffitt Expeditions, for 30 years you've been offering adventure travel, and mixed in with that, you've been also out finding new rivers and, and new runs, and balancing the two who were your clients and what were they looking for
0: well t- to begin with it's interesting you know when i was 23 24 our clientele was 23 24 and there was a lot of um, you know we're living in asia things were pretty loose um, we were in, we were loosely incorporated in asia um, you know everybody again i remember we had this french guy come into the office and it, we had a great scene we had a great Vibe uh, in terms of offering people information. It wasn't just about selling or running trips. We became this real kind of hub of people who were traveling through Asia. They they would come in and, and hear about our office. They would stop in and get information. And and typically, they would join a trip. And I remember this French guy sitting in the corner on one crazy busy day. And um, at the end of the day, I went over and I looked at him. I was like, can I help you? And he said, well, I'm looking at this... Uh, I'm looking at this wafer form, my friend. So you mean if I drown, it's my own fault? And I was like, yep, you got it. And he's like, okay, I'm in. And and so there was this, the adventures that we ran were, um, they were very original. There was nothing really set in stone. And... I think that's, again, drawing back to that aspect of freedom in the Himalayas. Every year the rivers would change. Big monsoons would come down. Rapids would change. Bridges would be blown out. Roads would be gone. And we were constantly making things up. And And, and
1: so as part of the adventure, actually getting to the river?
0: Getting to the river and getting back. You know, definitely, you know, I think.
1: Rather than even your time on the river, yeah,
0: probably one of them. Certainly, one of the most dangerous aspects of any travel in in Asia is the overlanding aspect of things. On the river, we're somewhat in control, and we can make decisions about whether we want to run something or, or don't want to run it. Um, so it was a really great time and then obviously as our confidence grew we be, we wanted to spread our wings and, and we 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 started I started to move back to Pakistan and to the Karakoram into the Tibetan plateau and to Sikkim. and we just spread further and further afield and we got further and further out there in in all ways. So to speak and
1: and so were the major challenges the terrain were was it the the occupants, the politics the unrest what what were the major challenges
0: I think we were challenged um I, what the the challenges were you never really you set off on an expedition, but you never really knew what the outcome was going to be, and like any guiding service you're trying to anticipate what could happen and you're you're not necessarily looking out for your own well-being you're looking out for the group and what i've enjoyed most of all is traveling with groups of people and molding them into a team i mean we might have eight or nine different nationalities on any expedition but we're going to bring everybody together to form this solid team and let them know that when the proverbial hits the fan we got to stick together and deal with it and I I think those are the the, you know when you finish an expedition like that at the time you don't necessarily know what the outcome is but when you finish and you look back on it those are the the moments that stick with you for a lifetime and I I always remember clients would leave a trip and they'd just be blown away what they'd just been through and we would kind of sit down and Take a few days and go, holy cow, that was pretty wild. you know. And these trips were maybe 23 weeks, four weeks long.
1: And it didn't matter if you made it down the river to the peak. It was still an incredibly intense and fulfilling
0: experience. Yeah, and and it wasn't always about hanging it out there. It, it was about traveling in an area and being in wilderness and using the river and be, uh, living this simple path with... Things that are, you know, just a campfire and a a sleeping bag and some rice.
1: All right. Well, we'll talk about it, if that's still the case, on on these adventures. I'm here with Jerry Moffitt, expedition leader, renowned paddler, National Geographic, Discovery Channel presenter. Stick with us. We'll be back. All right. We're back. This is Ellie Newman on Interrelationship, and I'm here with Jerry Moffitt. And we are about to uh, venture into his 3,000-mile trip, I'm just going to call it the trip, uh, across the Himalayas and and beyond. And uh, before we do that, though, Jerry, I want to talk a little bit about the transition from, because there are kind of two major transitions there. You went from old-school adventures um, to maybe what you've been doing in the last 10 years, which I'm guessing is a little different than the big bus and rice, or the truck and rice where you're making your own roads. And so what was that like? Uh, How did that evolve?
0: Uh, I mean, there was an interesting transition uh, happening naturally in Asia. Uh, at the end of the the nineteen of uh, the 90s um, the monarchy three hundred years of monarchy began to uh, crumble, and a maoist insurgency took place and It was interesting because the writing was on the wall in terms of everybody who had established businesses adventure travel businesses in Nepal were now really under threat and By that stage in the game, I started my own company and Uh, equator expeditions with a friend of mine Guy Robbins and another Nepalese uh, partner Mahindra Tappa and I'll I'll never forget it was a fabulous um, lesson for all of us but the original guy that we'd worked for his name was Tony Jones who'd owned the Overlanding Company and he'd you know just being you know an iconic figure in in the world of expeditioning um from the 60s all the way you know we'd learn from him he was the he was the man and and he and he still is actually today but i remember we were all sitting in Kathmandu and and the the uh, the revolution was closing in and and it was the end of the monarchy and we, of maybe five outfitters, were sitting around a table. And this is the first time that these competitors had been forced to come together. Uh, prior to that, everyone had been, you know, undercutting and and competing and you know, bad mouthing and all all the stuff that competitors in a small fishbowl do with each other in Kathmandu. In Kathmandu, so we're all forced to come together. Yeah, it's funny, Kathmandu. Catch them; it doesn't really matter, does it? So we're all. I, I, I'm guessing they're a little different. <laughs> we're all forced to come together. We're sitting around this table, and um, and we're all looking at you know huge financial hits, if not the end of our organizations and. And some guys saying, God, I just, I just invested everything in new brochures. And the next guy's going, I just bought a new bus. And the next guy's going, I just invested in this equipment and so on. And this guy, Tony Jones, just sitting in silence, just slams his fist on the table and goes, gentlemen, this is it. This is the world of adventure travel. Welcome. And it was such a brilliant, you know, reminder of this world that we'd, um, that we loved so much, and we'd 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 worked our way into it. The, there wasn't anything certain. There there was no who who where was the certainty of owning an adventure travel business in a third world emerging country with a revolution going on, <laughs> and, and that had to be okay. And it was great. And it was like such this kind of like oh yeah okay well what's next and it and it kind of just propelled everyone back to the sense of, like, yeah, there's no certainty in this in And this And thing. had
1: your clientele changed? Were they still the 23- and 24-year-old adventurers, or were, were they a different group? Well,
0: I was beginning to change significantly. I was going through a lot of personal changes, and the band was kind of breaking up you know and we all had to we we were we kind of held on to this this um this lifestyle that was really unsustainable of of a lot of partying a lot of a lot of drugs a lot of alcohol a lot of craziness and it wasn't really working anymore and it was interesting that it was coming to the end with um, the end of the, the monarchy. and
1: well, I was going to ask if the political changes had influenced any sort of change in that atmosphere as well, that maybe that behavior wasn't as safe as it had been prior or acceptable.
0: Yeah, I think everything was under, everything was in transition and so I stepped out <clears throat> I, I, I went away and kind of rediscovered myself and when I came back on the scene um, it was just Again, an opportunity and fate, and I was offered this this uh, this gig in Bhutan, and that really um, became uh, that became a, a very different experience to the craziness of Nepal because we were now moving into a very organized environment with a a set of rules, a very uh, um, wise leadership at the a, time. And a
1: solid monarchy. You, you must trend towards the monarchy. Yeah,
0: well, I, I'm not really sure that a lot of Asia is ready for democracy yet, you know, and it's, but benevolent leadership is, is uh, they're few and far between. So it, it was a very, very interesting time to then end up in Bhutan at the end of the 90s, kind of rebuilding myself and, and having this phenomenal structure. You know, I really kind of welcomed that. It was, you know, Bhutan was very settled. It's, you know, the last remaining Buddhist kingdom in the world, and they had a policy of restricted tourism. They certainly didn't want the riffraff there. That's for sure. And they didn't want to have the kind of Bali, Indonesian backpacker culture that had affected uh, and was part and parcel of the rest of Asia. They wanted to like say, okay, we want tourism, but we want it on our terms and we want to protect our environment, and we want to protect our culture. So let's slap a big fat visa fee on everybody. And that way it's going to weed out the budget travelers, but we're going to have solid tourism come into our country and we can tax it. And it was genius. And it still is to a large extent, you know, a fabulous model. And so what we were, I was brought in with a couple of friends because although they didn't necessarily want more people, more tourists, what they did want to do was offer them adventure travel activities um, that were sustainable rafting, biking, trekking. And, and that's where we came in to, to begin to lay the groundwork and infrastructure of expertise that would now give and start to market Bhutan outside of that of just being a cultural destination.
1: And and at this point is Asia as much a part of your life and existence a soul as as anywhere else you've you'd been?
0: I think so. I think that you know, I, I've learned so much in Asia. I've I've taken so much from Asia and I've spent so much time in Asia that I have a lot of lasting uh, and, and solid friendships. And now I'm kind of making that transition. You know, I just turned 50, and that's leading into probably okay. what we're about yep. to Okay, yep, so let's about.
1: talk about the trip. So courtesy of Men's Journal, I stole from them as well. I'm just borrowing. Sorry, stealing. Mm-hmm. Okay. adventurer Jerry Moffat spent much of the 70s and 80s guiding expeditions in the Himalayas. Now on the cusp of turning 50, he's back in the midst of a 3,000-mile journey across India, Nepal, and Bhutan by motorcycle, foot, and kayak. His plan? To revisit the many rivers and roads he hasn't seen in decades and to take stock of the changes that expeditions and other tourism has brought to recent regions in recent years. So you had decided to take a hiatus from leading the, the high-end adventure travel that, that was you had, had um, been chosen for in Bhutan. And uh, why why now?
0: Well, I think we were seeing such, and we've, we're seeing right now, such radical change in, in the Himalaya um, and the impacts of that change. We're seeing the impacts of, of more tourism. And we're seeing those impacts, and they're not necessarily positive. We're seeing a lot of trash. We're seeing a lot of um, rural to urban migration. We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of uh, modernization without the infrastructure to support it. And when I, and is this something
1: you've been seeing happening slowly in the last 15 years, or is it something that all of a sudden it just escalated to a place where you could not not see it any longer?
0: I think it's really escalated fast in the last decade. I mean, it'd been kind of like trickling in, but w- Bhutan was a very interesting case study because up until 1999, Bhutan was completely closed to the Western world. So Bhutan didn't have internet, Bhutan didn't have television, um, and it was locked off. It was basically, as they said, the last Shangri-La, where time stands still. And then it suddenly opens its doors. And in a very short period of time, we see this transition from this incredibly clean and pristine environment. So if you think of Bhutanese carrying you know, their, their, their shopping and their commodities in uh, bamboo baskets or their produce in banana leaves, Well, what do you do when you're finished with your your, uh, shopping bags? You throw it on the ground and it biodegrades. Well, when you bring in plastic bags and when you bring in cartons and when you bring in uh, packaging, what do you expect people to do with it? There's no infrastructure for people to put anything anywhere, so you just discard it and you just throw it on the ground. And in a very short period of time, as I said, you go from this pristine environment to something that's got a ton of trash. And I... I woke up, literally, I was on one trip, because I'd had this group of people in Bhutan six or seven years before, and we were back, and they came in, and they were like, holy cow, this is, the Bhutan's got a lot of trash. still beautiful, but it's got a lot of trash, and that was the first thing that everybody noticed, and at that moment in time, I knew that I had to to stop Actually, I didn't know at that moment in time, but I knew there was something really wrong. And I knew that I was part of the problem. And I knew that just bringing people to Bhutan and bringing people to the Himalayas without some kind of mechanism in place wasn't serving me well at all. And it wasn't serving Bhutan well, and it wasn't serving the people that I was bringing. And I think we don't have the answers now, but at least we're asking the right questions. It's like, how do we start to participate in being more mindful about how we travel. And I think people would like to participate, they just don't know how to participate in a healthier environment. And so I think that's the door that we're now knocking on.
1: Okay, so we're gonna take a short break. This is Ellie One industry Relationship. I'm here with Jerry Moffat, and we are talking about his solo trip to uh, through the Himalayas and beyond, 3,000 miles on motorcycle, foot, and kayak. And we'll be back in just a moment. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship, and I'm here with Jerry Moffitt. And we were just figuring out that today's the official day for him to be over jet lag. It's day 12, and I was asking if it seemed like the trip was. It was forever ago. And um, yes and no. So let's talk about the trip. Talked a little bit about why now. I want to talk about uh, why solo. I
0: I think turning so turning fifty was a big benchmark. I think it allowed me, it kind of gave me permission to kind of say, okay, I'm turning fifty years old. What, what is the the next act look like? And um, Pia, my partner in, uh, in in both business and and in, in life, we we talked about this aspect of turning fifty as a point of reflection. And and for me, it was it. It gave me permission. It gave me the opportunity to say, okay, I want to take a time out. And my life is, has – change is not easy. You know, change is, is is difficult. And one of the things about change is I didn't want any commentary. I didn't want to go with, with other people. I didn't want to have to filter um, other people's uh, desires uh, or – you know, intentions or, or wants. I wanted to go and do something that I could, because I spent my whole life guiding and, and working in production. Yes, sure, I've been on brilliant expeditions in the middle with close friends, but you're always in some way compromising or, or coming to terms with a group decision that, that's maybe not as personal as it needs to be to go and explore where you want to explore. And, and I'm talking about the internal. So for me, the idea of going solo was I knew that I I just knew that that's what I needed to do to attain the answers that I wanted to get and it was a difficult decision because the places I was going and what I wanted to do there's definitely you know tangible risk involved but I kind of sat back and went okay this is something that I could and I would do with other people. So take away those other people. What mechanisms do I have to put in place to protect myself?
1: And it's no longer about the collaboration, which is what you said many of these trips became. It becomes necessitating about something else. Yeah. And and you talked about, uh, when you and I met previously, about leaving the West behind and what that process is like and why is it important.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, so many people, you know, having spent... Uh, The majority of my adult life in developing nations and and making the transition, we talked about jet lag, you know, being on the other side of the planet. The biggest uh, realization that I have when I travel today is that my first objective is to leave the West behind is to leave my expectations behind. And people who have expectations, so let's say you go to India. India is mad. It is crazy. And when I come in with a whole bunch of Western expectations, I'll drive myself mad. You want to get on the first flight and go home. You you know, you can't make sense of it. And a lot of people end up doing that. They just cannot make the transition because they're trying to, they have this expectations comparison between India and Sun Valley. (laughs) That's nuts. What you have to do is get to India and start to see India for what it is. And you start to immerse yourself. It doesn't mean that you let down your safety boundaries and barriers. It just means that you start to understand that there's a very different culture on the planet. And it operates in a very different way. And so that's the first task. And that in and of itself takes several days. I would say it takes me 10 days Easily to begin to make the transition to see past the filth, the trash, the poverty, um, and begin to arrive in India without wearing it, without wearing it as this heavy burden. And once I start to kind of loosen that off, and I arrive in India, then I start my head starts to wobble, like an Indian's, and I start to just kind of relax. And here I am, and I'm in this magical place that just operates. With a completely different set and, and of so then
1: then what happens when you shed the West? You talked a little about three levels of a journey: emotional, physical, and spiritual. Um, so, are you able to start that once you you've shedded the West?
0: I think so. And again, I think going solo that was really you know for me the 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 greatest gift one on on the trip. So I basically I bought this. I wanted to travel the length of the Himalayas. I wanted to look at what was happening. Um, across the Himalayas in terms of development, in terms of social change, in terms of issues, and in terms of potential solutions. I wanted to meet local people. I wanted to get to know um, NGOs and and project leaders on the ground who were fighting the fight. And I wanted to do it, uh, I wanted to use a, a mode of transportation that gave me the freedom to be able to not rely on public transport because travelling in Indian buses is terrifying, um, or to fly, and the Royal Enfield is an Indian motorcycle that was designed by the British uh, in the, at the turn of the nineteenth century, uh, turn of the twentieth century, sorry, and and so the Royal Enfield became this kind of and it is this iconic mode of transportation in India. It's all mechanical, no computer chips, nothing fancy. And I I thought that's going to be my mode of transportation. So I got to Delhi, I bought a bike, I worked with a series of mechanics. We rebuilt the bike from scratch, new engine, new gearbox, new um, brakes, suspension. and, And I had this amazing machine that was going to take me, you know, the length of the Himalayas. And interestingly enough, that was the same motorcycle that the British used back in the day, in times of the British Empire, to do and run the border patrols. So I knew the bike, you know, if it was put together well, um, you know, had the, had the. I wasn't exactly confident in it, but I knew that, you know, this, this is gonna be an adventure. And then with my partner, Pia, who, you know, really supplies the intellectual firepower in the in the the partnership. We wanted to marry this aspect of adventure with um, social change, and because I think adventure, in and of itself, can, you know, people may not relate to that, and and social change and 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 policy-driven content can be somewhat dry. But we, by bringing them both together and having this adventure mixed in with stories from people on the ground we we believe and and i think we've we've proven now that it it provides for for interesting and compelling content and that's really what our our mission was was all about was to tell the story of what's happening at a ground level in the himalaya
1: which you had mentioned that that's really an adventure right is is to get the story and then tell the story live the story
0: yeah there was this authenticity again of like you know this rawness of traveling by myself, and I was on a solo kayak kayak expedition at one point, so uh, I was going to ask, was that the fun part? Was
1: that the shedding the west part was <laughs> the solo kayaking element
0: I think I had to prove I think there was a level of just building my confidence again of stepping back into the game of of really being true to myself and true to my roots and away from this not that I don't enjoy it, but away from the kind of high-end guiding, you know, expensive hotels and, and expectations. And I needed to kind of get back to my roots. And and that was going on this kayaking expedition where it's the it's the simple things in life. It's it's understanding the, the warmth of a sleeping bag and just this that everything that you need is in the back of your kayak. And for me what was the most I I still think when I look back on the whole experience was halfway through the trip was I made a connection again with nature at the coolest and rawest and most beautiful, authentic and spiritual level, where I was completely surrounded by wilderness, the stars, a turquoise river and no people and the gift and the sense of gratitude of having this connection to nature And the importance of nature and the importance of this wilderness, not in my life in all aspects, but for generations to come and recognizing that there are people, a lot of people who don't understand that and who, you know, are in the game for very short, uh, self-seeking, uh, you know, and, aspect. And, and
1: do you feel like your relationship to, to nature and to the kayaking has changed? Be, when you first started, was it more of a, a conquering and a discovering? And okay, I ran that, and I, I conquered it. Because you certainly didn't pick an easy river to run solo. There's one point in your blog where you can just see you sort of casually push off this rock. But if you hadn't noticed that that rock was there, you would have been impaled on it. So, and and you had to end. You know, change your plan of how you were going to run the river because of a mos- monsoon. So, so it wasn't a simple, casual gliding down the river solo. It was certainly a challenging expedition, even just that part.
0: Well, I think you have to emerge again. For me, it was like, well, this is the skill set I need. I have the skill set, and like anything, I, I, uh, I'm always. I have this terrific friend, and everybody will know and catch him, Pete Patterson, son of Sun Valley, and and Pete. Pete's always been a mentor to me in terms of, like, when Pete comes back, you know, Pete was fifth in the Olympics. He's the head heli-skiing guide. He's he's a mountain man. His name is Mr. Ski. But Pete starts his season off by hiking up Baldy at five o'clock in the morning. And he hikes and he hikes and he gets his legs strong. And once he's legs strong, he starts skiing college. And once he's finished skiing college, he starts – and there's this preparation – and I love that. I love a sense of preparation. And this summer, I managed to spend, I went back to the payouts. I got back to the foundation of, like, getting myself strong, building up my reactions and getting myself back in the game so that by the time I got to the river, I paid my dues. Ed Vister's is the same. the same deal. No shortcuts to the top. You know, Ed's preparation, it, it's not about summiting. It's about having this opportunity to participate in nature at a place where everything's very real. And that is an amazing gift.
1: So you're turning, tuning the instruments so you can have the, the sublime experience when you get there.
0: Yeah, and a lot of clients don't really necessarily want to pay their dues. They just want to be there. <laughs> and, and and you uh, have a different experience then, right? And we have a different experience. But we're always like, I think the greatest, Sun Valley's just this amazing place. It's this base camp. It's a place where you can eat well, where you're inspired by healthy people. You've got clean air, clean water. you got gyms. You've got access to good food. You've got running water. You've got, you know, organized traffic. You've got all these things that you can prepare yourself But as Bob Poole always says, the fight's out there, pointing overseas. And so I I love my community and I love being here. And I love that, knowing that I can continue to do what I do in, in the woods.
1: So, so you, you ran the river, you got your motorcycle, you have a 300-mile journey ahead of you, and uh, you start this off in the city of Leh and, and the family you stayed with while preparing for the trip, it was obvious that you have a deep relationship with them. I'm guessing you have quite a few very deep relationships after the time you spent there. Could you tell us a little bit about the family in
0: Lay? Yeah, I've always had a gift, um, and I've understood the importance of, um, of communication. And I, I always kind of look for the, the little, the inroads to um, be accepted in um, in in different cultures. And I understand um, how to be respectful. I understand um, the the nuances that are required to kind of become part of it, to get past the veil of being a tourist and be accepted. And so that's, you know, that's just experience. And... And so living with a family and, you know, when I'm the one who gets invited from the guest house into their front living room for dinner every night and we're sitting around, you know, just, just talking. And what are you talking about? We're talking about how the crops are going to be harvested. We're talking about how the winter was. We're talking about who, you know, what the political landscape looks like. I mean, it's just fascinating. It's a fascinating way to be embedded in, in the local community. And, um, I just, that's, that's really where it's at. And that, you know, without being condescending, that is the, the, the transition between being a tourist and being a traveler, you know, there's.
1: And, and what do they think about, uh, your, your trip, your ambitious journey when, when you're setting off? Uh, part, do they think you're nuts?
0: Part crazy, part intrigued. Um, and I just got an email from, uh, from family up in and lay asking how things had gone and. It's just, it's such a gift. It's, I lived, I lived with a Nepalese family for my partner for over 10 years. So I under, that dynamic of family in Asia is very different than the dynamic of family in the West and the dynamic of the family in Asia is one about survival. Everybody hunkered down in the same house, the same, uh, compound, um, all interdependent on each other for survival. That's not the case in the West. You know, we live in a very different cultural dynamic than, than the one in the East.
1: And so are your worlds fairly separate when you're in the West? Are you mostly focused on, on the West? Are you still communicating with the families and the people that you met in Asia in the time when you were you're away from there? And then, you know, h- how, yeah, how, how strong is that curtain between the two?
0: I, I think it's the most fabulous gift in the world to be able to move between the gifts of the West and, and take the strengths of the west into the east and take the strengths of the east back into the, the west and and to have to have this shared dynamic where you recognize the richness of both cultures and and it's easy for people to get down on on, on their own culture certainly here in the West you know I, I'm incredibly grateful for the structure uh, that uh, of, of America um, I recently became an American citizen and I had to fight. Uh, And it took a lot of work. Uh, You had to really earn that to to get this passport to be part of America. But spending um, a lot of my time in developing countries, if you're whining about what's going on in America, go check out Delhi for a while. Go to the Middle East, go to East Africa. We got it really, really good. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but this is a phenomenal place to live. And that said, we have to fight for it. The advocacy groups, the groups who are uh, Andy Munter and and, and the, the, the people who support Idaho Rivers United, and I watch all these lobbying groups, you know, protecting what was laid down by great visionaries like Teddy Roosevelt, who, you know, designated vast tracts of wilderness. We have got it good. This is not happening in Asia. Right now, these countries are dealing with poverty. They're dealing with... You know, huge uh, problems. They're almost insurmountable. And that's what we can take over in terms of, without, you know, being condescending, we can take over expertise, our, our expertise. We can say these are the mistakes we made. But often or not, these countries have to make the mistakes for themselves, just like any person.
1: All right. This is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship. I'm here with Jerry Moffat. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. Stick with us. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on its relationship. I'm here at Jerry Moffat. I was te- teasing him about his search for the abominable snowman. It's a good time of year, you know, to think about the abominable snowman that he did for National Geographic, and it's well worth checking out his videos on that. He had an incredibly interesting adventure and um, learned learned a lot, as you will as well, by by watching it. So we're going to focus for the last uh, few minutes here on on the trip, and uh, Jerry will be coming back for a part two of the show where we talk about Bhutan and and what's happening there and and his um, intense involvement with trying to help guide it in the right direction and do what he can to make sure they can find some balance of growth and uh, sustainability and environmental stability. Okay, so Jerry, on the trip, you you headed off and there were some questions you were trying to answer some vaguely we're sort of how do I want to engage and what is the give and take with nature and uh, the Himalayan exploration with social responsibility how how are those two married so what happens you've rafted down the river you're on the motorcycle what was it like what were the highs and lows and, and what did you take away
0: Learning the, learning how to ride the motorcycle was a, a, a challenge. Had
1: uh, you ridden, ridden a motorcycle before? Was this a skill set you, you owned?
0: Not a bike like this. It was interesting. The gear lever was on the other side and the brake, <laughs> so it was like kayaking with a left-handed paddle. It took some time to figure out how to, you know, work the gears and the accelerator and uh, and you're doing this in the middle of the Himalayas in the middle of Asia it was it was the first week was really
1: and you're trying to figure out which side of the road to drive yep. on yep. and you're dodging cattle and ch- trucks and who knows what else
0: yeah the big the, 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 in india they have these tata trucks and the tata trucks are the great transport system Of Asia, and a lot of these roads are single. They're as wide as a vehicle, Um, with a
1: steep drop off on the side. Right, huge
0: drop off. I crossed several passes. I crossed several passes at seventeen thousand five hundred feet, and I was carrying. To begin with, I was carrying quite a bit of weight. Uh, A lot of it quite a bit of pressure on the trip I I had some very very close friends participate in investing and partnering in getting the trip up and running and I really felt responsible in a lot of ways for the success of the expedition and I think that that motivated me to work really hard Um, and then at the end of the day I really felt like I was carrying this flag for a lot of people in a lot of ways and as I moved deeper into the trip, the first three to four weeks were very, were, were quite intense. Um, and then it was interesting, the Ladakhis and the Indians, everybody was was pressuring me to cross this pass called the Kardang La Pass. And the Kardang La Pass leads into this kind of fabled remote area called Spiti. And Spiti, I'd never been to Spiti before, and so I pushed really hard for several days, and I was driving.
1: And, and why did they think this was a good idea?
0: Well, it's a very auspicious area. And so I pu- I was pushing super hard, and I got, and they said, well, when you get to the top of the cardinal, you have to circumnavigate, you have to do corners around the pass three times. And so I I pushed really hard, and, and we're talking crossing rivers, deep rivers, where, you know, uh, rock, huge landslides, no no tarmac. I mean off road, on an old World War Two, you know, Enfield motorcycle, and I didn't know if the bike. I didn't. I felt like the bike is just taking a pounding. I, I just didn't. I was like I couldn't believe that it was still you know going forwards. Anyway, I got to the top of this pass. And I looked down into the Spiti Valley and I looked down into the Rotang Valley and I circumnavigated this this, uh, chart, this beautiful series of chortens, And I was like, I'm fine. I'm here. I've made it. And from here on, we're in the game. No matter what happens, it's all good. And I think it was very much uh, me accepting that from here on out, we're going to be okay. And if it's broken, I can fix it. And if I haven't got it, I can make it.
1: And, and by making it on the success of the trip, is that defined by crossing the 3,000 miles or
0: something else? Um, I think it's always nice to kind of achieve your goals. It's always <laughs> nice to like stand on top of That's to the icing the on the cake. Um, but that, but ultimately for me personally, I just, you know, I, I, I I'm in a. Fabulous relationship um, with somebody who supports me amazingly, and and really was, you know, instrumental in in making this work, and was a partner in every way in terms of of um, uh, organizing and 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 being an expedition partner on the trip. Even though for the, most of the time, Pia was here in the states, when she came out to to participate in more of the um, the the, the um, the interviewing of some of the stories that we did at a deeper level, um, I, I, there were, that was just really special to have somebody out there who really had my back and, uh, you know, to be able to share the experience.
1: And the, the kind of personal barometer for success was reached when you were on that, that um, looking down the valley.
0: I, I think so. That was a huge point. And, and because point. you
1: felt what at that moment?
0: I felt a sense of relief um, I, I felt a tremendous sense of achievement. Um, I felt a, a, a very special, I, I felt a lot of confidence. And I was just going, we just knocked one out the park.
1: In, in your, so you found that zone, right? You're back in the place where you're connected with nature and with yourself. And, and, and with I need to do
0: that. I mean, there was obviously something inside of me that needed to kind of get back on the horse after a long time and kind of stand on my own mountain and kind of look around and go, Ta-da! The
1: West had been shed, and you're looking down on the East. All right, well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on It's Relationship. I'm here with Jerry Moffitt. He'll be back next week to part two of the adventure expedition and his relationship to Bhutan.